Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today our guest is Emily Neumeyer, a PhD student in art history at University of Pennsylvania. Emily, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. We have been chasing Emily for, I think it's got to be at least six months to get her on the podcast to talk about this topic. We're going to be talking about probably the most well-known Ottoman painter, Osman Hamdi Bey. But this isn't going to be a typical lecture about paintings and, and art, although we'll have some of that in here. We're going to be talking about the, the topic of art and diplomacy, how Osman Hamdi Bey's art became linked with some of the politics of the period. So Emily, I'm actually kind of curious how art and diplomacy could be at all related. Well, it's interesting, right? We have an uh, individual in Osman Hamdi Bey who wears a lot of hats in the late Ottoman Empire. He's an archaeologist. He's a diplomat. He's an administrator. He's a politician. And when we start to look at his paintings, you can't ignore all the other aspects of Osman Hamdi Bey's career and life. And I think in a lot of ways, he's really representative of a real cosmopolitan late Ottoman gentleman. And he definitely saw himself that way. So when we look at aspects of art, and we take into consideration that a lot of his paintings were never exhibited within the Ottoman Empire, um, a good amount of them were almost exclusively exhibited in international contexts. He was exhibited abroad uh, in, a, in a range of uh, locations such as London, Paris, Berlin, you know, Chicago. So, so we have to see the context of the exhibitions and his art, um, not only as uh, in terms of the lens of art history, but also in the context of diplomacy and the formation of Ottoman identity on an international stage. And so I think today you're going to be sharing with us the story of a, a new discovery about the, the history of Osman Hamdi Bey's works that totally brings together the, the themes you just described, a painting that surfaced in, at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. Yeah, that's correct. This is a really exciting development in the history of Osman Hamdi Bey's work. In approximately 2007, a professor of mine, uh, Robert Osterhout at the University of Pennsylvania, in partnership with some colleagues at the Penn Museum Archives, they discovered a rolled-up Osman Hamdi Bey painting. It had been, and this thing is huge. It's oh, it's a little under seven feet tall. So it's it, it's, a, it's a significant example of Osman Hamdi Bey's work, and it had been rolled up and pretty much dashed in a corner somewhere and uh, they realized what they had and part of this discovery is Bob decided he wanted he teamed up with my advisor Renata Hallid and they decided to uh, organize an exhibition uh, both at the Penn Museum and then later uh, in conjunction with the Para Museum and what this discovery of this painting the question it generated is why would an archaeology museum own a painting by Osman Hamdi Bey. And on top of that, why did this painting meet the fate that it did? The short answer is, is that this painting basically served a, a diplomatic purpose. It served as diplomatic currency, if you will. And the main topics that we're looking at in the exhibition is trying to understand how, um, within the context of the Penn Museum's excavations in Nippur, Iraq, of a, of a Sumerian site, you know, in their in their uh, enthusiasm for excavating 
the Sumerian site, uh, what they needed to, in, in terms of the, uh, the changing laws within the Ottoman Empire of, you know, the sort of dance between the Ottoman authorities and foreign excavators who were, you know, eager in this late 19th century period. Another recent exhibition called it the, the Scramble for the Past. Uh, where everyone was anxious, the Louvre, the British Museum, and the Penn Museum, they were all looking for uh, opportunities to discover antiquities and take them home for themselves. And uh, Osman Hamdi Bey became a big player in that diplomatic uh, negotiation for antiquities. And this painting becomes a, a really significant aspect of this back and forth uh, between the Americans and between the Ottoman Ministry of Antiquities, which was headed up by Osman Hamdi Bey at that period. So actually the story, the drama that you just set up is going to surprise a lot of people who are familiar with Osman Hamdi Bey's works and, and his involvement in Ottoman art and photography during the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. But for a lot of our listeners who, who don't know too much about Ottoman art or the figure of Osman Hamdi Bey, it's probably worth explaining a little bit about you know his background, his education, who he was an artist and some of the, the features of his uh, of his works. Osman Hamdi Bey was really uh, born into the highest elites of Ottoman political class. His his father was uh, the vizier um, Ibrahim Edhem Pasha, and as all young men were at that time period in the mid nineteenth century, he was sent to France for his education. He was sent to Paris in eighteen sixty, and he was supposed to study law. But uh, as we know now through, uh, you know, various letters uh, back and forth uh, to his father, which were, by the way, interestingly enough, written in French um, in their personal correspondences, um, he actually discovered his love for painting. And he started to study painting at the um, École de Beaux-Arts in Paris uh, in the studio of uh, Jérôme, who is probably one of the best known Orientalist painters of the period. Um, and he studied directly with uh, another Orientalist painter, uh, Gustave Boulanger, in that studio. And so he learned with the best of the uh, the Orientalist painters of that time in Paris. And he knew from that instant on that he wanted to be a painter. But he, unfortunately, his father had different ideas for him. And in the late 1860s, he came home and his father packed him up and sent him off for his first administrative position as the assistant to uh, Mirhat Pasha in Iraq, in Baghdad. A very common story for yeah. intellectuals <laughs> such as Mirhat Pasha or a lot of others yeah. that end up as the governor yeah. of some kind of peripheral region Absolutely. rather than pursuing their intellectual and political goals in the capital. Absolutely. But he eventually got to the capital and um, a few years later, or in, in the 70s, he came to Istanbul and he had acquired many key positions where he was uh, a liaison between the Ottoman government and foreigners. So, for example, he was, uh, most significantly, I think he was the mayor of Galata and Pera, which was obviously the the neighborhood where most of the foreigners, Europeans, lived at that time. Um, so he served in that position one of the most significant landmarks in Osman Hamdi Bey's career is in 1881 when he's appointed the uh, head of the new archaeology museum. And he's also, very shortly afterwards in 1882, he establishes the uh, Sanayi Nefise Mektabi, which is 
you know, as you know, essentially an Ottoman, a Col de Beaux-Arts, essentially, in Istanbul. In 1881, 1882, he sort of very quickly acquires these two very key positions as um, really the gatekeeper, and he's also the, the mastermind, so to speak, of these new efforts in the Hamidian period of westernizing and the larger effort of the Ottoman Empire to gain some kind of cultural validity in the sort of broader international sphere of what it meant to be a civilized, modern state at that time period. So here we have, of course, an artist that we've we've said before and many people have seen his works, but also just so involved with, as you said, foreigners as, as a liaison, as a sort of diplomat, and at the same time involves with defining how the Ottomans would represent themselves to the quote-unquote outside world. Right. Well, one of the other aspects of Osman Hamdi Bey's career is that he played a, a significant role in um, the Ottoman participation in several world exhibitions that were, you know, so prolific at this time. Specifically, he was on the exhibition committee of the 1873 Vienna Exposition. And part of that effort was the um, organization of two photography albums. One of them was a costume album that in a very uh, plain ethnographic manner um, sort of cataloged the different costumes of different ethnographic groups in the Ottoman Empire. And we've, we've posted a number of those pictures on our website, you know, sort of uh, incrementally, and we're, go- we're going to post some more uh, with this podcast so you guys can get a, a sense of what they, they are. Essentially, one picture will say a Greek woman from X town or a Jewish man from Bursa, and they'll have the, the clothes the people were supposedly supposed to wear. I don't know. And precisely, and I mean, as you start to sort of pick apart, you know, the details of these photography albums and when you also pick apart the details of Osman Hamdi Bey's paintings, you'll start to realize that things are not exactly as they seem. Uh, Ahmed Ersoy has done a lot of work on these costume albums, and um, in an article, he lays out very clearly that if you look closely at the photography album, it's the same individuals in every plate, just basically wearing different costumes. Um, So it was pretty clear that you know, they just had a bin- bunch of costumes and they, they brought them into uh, Edhem Pasha's uh, salon and they, you know, had them try on different costumes. So, you know, you have to, when you start just sort of picking apart the details, you'll start to realize that, you know, um, the sort of objective truth that photography promises um, quickly falls apart. Well, that's actually where I wanted to jump in with one of my questions about Osman Hamdi Bey. It's kind of Maybe not the most interesting thing we can say about him, but it's certainly uh, a question and debate that's bandied around. And that's the question of, quote unquote, Ottoman Orientalism. Some would say that Osman Hamdi Bey has a certain Orientalist gaze when looking at his own Ottoman society and some of his works and that and that, uh, a sort of sort of Orientalist sensibilities are reflected in his works. And these reflected a larger late Ottoman, some would say colonial, some would say imperial approach to the peripheral regions of the empire. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really a central question about Osman Hamdi Bey, and it's one that's very much up for debate. Um, there are those who would, I think, put Osman Hamdi Bey in, um, they would argue for him being in this sort of, uh, taking this revisionary stance against Orientalism by painting in an, this sort of hyper-realistic, almost photographic 
mode that is so familiar to the genre of Orientalist painting, but he noticeably avoids, you know, such, you know, kind of these exotic and salacious scenes. I mean, I think, um, you know, many people would, you know, know the Jerome painting, The Snake Charmer, um, and uh, we'll, we'll include it, I'm sure, in the, in the podcast uh, uh, attached photos. Um, so these this type of indelible image, um, these these sort of scenes of um, you know nudity and and sex and these standard Orientalist tropes of you know like I said there's like um, decadence decadence and violence and laziness uh, I don't know and Osman Hamdi Bey um, very much uh, avoids those types of scenes his genre, the, these these paintings tend to be um, you know mostly group paintings in an outdoor setting not doing anything uh, remotely objectionable. And um, some have argued, such as Wendy Shaw and Zainab Chalik, that uh, Osman Hamdi Bey is kind of this revisionary figure trying to um, speak back to the Orientalist discourse, you know, as Chalik puts it. And then there are those who I think would argue that Osman Hamdi Bey really is uh, an Orientalist um, and, you know, sees himself as as a European, um, not, you know, looking, looking from the outside in to, you know, basically pre-modern, um, societies and people. So, you know, this is following in the work of all this sort of Ottoman Orientalism. So Daring Gil and, and, um, Usama Mikdisi, um, oh, actually Usama Mikdisi sort of holds up Osman Hamdi Bey as one of his principal case studies in his article. So, um, but I think I think where we're coming to um, in in the c- exhibition catalog of the Para Museum, um, you know, both Emine Fedvaja and I think also Ahmed Ersoy, um, I think we're all we're all coming to this realization that he's neither one nor the other. We have to accept that he is one of these um, really interesting um, figures in the 19th century, where you know he really is. His, in his obituary, they called him the most Ottoman of the Parisians and the most Parisian of the Ottomans. That he is this man that is in this um, with a foot in both worlds. And you know, when you look at his paintings, uh, you see effort. You really do see efforts to um, cast the to to recast the Ottoman Empire in a really positive light on this international stage. But there are other aspects of it too that really do cast him very much so as a as an Ottoman Orientalist. Well, there's no reason why those two positions should be at all contradictory, that an an Ottoman elite intellectual would on one hand uh, seek to counter representations of the Ottomans in the West, and on the other hand have certain ideas about the larger society within which he lived that could be interpreted as Orientalist, or at least having some sort of sense of civilizational superiority. And we see this represented in other Mm -hmm. Ottoman intellectuals. It's unfortunate that these figures, because people want to make a specific historical argument, will inevitably get cornered into one category in order to make a larger point that yeah. the author is trying to make. It, But yeah, exactly. in looking at this figure, I think we can just see how complicated these categories really are, especially mm-hmm. for the, the time and place that we're looking at. We didn't talk about any of the paintings yet, actually. <laughs> it's actually funny. It's, it's, it's pretty easy to talk about Osman Hamdi Bey and his art and then not actually really talk about paintings. <laughs> but we're not going to do that. Let's uh <laughs> let's uh let's introduce a few of He's the paintings. Such a fascinating person. Yeah. Let's let's introduce a few okay. of the paintings that we have up on the Ottoman History Podcast website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we have a collection of uh, 
reasonable quality images of some some paintings of Osman Hamdi Bey. Uh, the first one I'd like to ask about is probably the the one that's been seen the most, which is the tortoise trainer. Yeah, I think if if you know about Osman Hamdi Bey, the painting you probably know is the tortoise trainer. Um, there are actually two versions. One of one of which is at the um, the Para Museum and is on exhibition there currently. So go see it. I think, I think most people probably know it. It's a turban gentleman who, by the way, is Osman Hamdi Bey himself posing in, you know, sort of orientalizing, you know, costume. And he is in an architectural interior. We're pretty sure it's referring to the, the interior of the Green Mosque in Bursa, so a 15th century building. And he's looking, he's a sort of, you know, uh, supervising uh, some tortoises that are just munching away on some some leaves so uh, some people have uh, interpreted this as tongue-in-cheek criticism of the of the government of you know sort of these sort of bureaucrats who they're just kind of spinning their wheels but they don't actually get anything done it's interesting actually Ed Hemeldem published uh, recently an article he's actually uh, found in the archives in Osman Hamdi Bey's uh, personal collection uh, a magazine that features a korean a cartoon of a of a korean tortoise trainer basically wow. and um you know it's 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 a it's a pretty it's a pretty uh it's it's very convincing it's it's really a one-to-one i think uh so he kind of got the idea from actually this this french uh newspaper this 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 cartoon um i still think though that um even if he got the idea from the journal, I think he still could have, um, you know, definitely could translate into a criticism of, you know, the context in which he painted it, for sure. We can use the tortoise trainer as an example of how complicated Osman Hamdi Bey's paintings really are. And this is what's so interesting about, you know, Orientalist paintings is that, as I said before, they they have um, the sort of hyper-realistic photographic quality, and these painters did routinely work from photographic studies. They have this um, illusion of truth or of um, almost sort of journalistic documentation, but um, even the tortoise trainer um, is a great example of how Osman Hamdi Bey's paintings are essentially um, really complicated um, mixture or pastiche of um, several elements, mostly being, um, you know, um, ethnographic costumes, which can easily, you know, be understood from his interest in the costume album from the Vienna exhibition. Um, The inclusion of himself and his family members as models, you know, they're usually wearing these costume albums. So, you know, it's uh, usually either himself or his wife or his children modeling these costumes. And sometimes in a, in a, in a painting such as at the mosque door, um, he can appear several times in one painting. So, you know, um, Osman Hanji appears four times and at the mosque door in various costumes. And sometimes he's even, you know, three Osman Hamdi bays are actually talking to each other. Right. There's there's a painting Hoja's conversing at the mosque where if you look closely enough, um, that's actually Osman Hamdi Bey in three different guises, and they're all sort of talking to each other. But in fact, it's it's Osman Hamdi Bey in every if you look closely in every instance. Um, and the last aspect is architecture. Most of Osman Hamdi Bey's paintings have a very specific reference, a referent to um, a specific building, which we can usually um, identify. Actually. Um, Belgian Demir Sar did this amazing study 
of where she sort of went through pretty much all of Osman Hamdi Bey's work and she cataloged all the different aspects of the painting, the objects in the painting, the costumes, um, and the architecture. And she actually identified where all of these different traces come from. And mm. if you just sort of browse through this catalog, you'll realize that a lot of these um, elements in the painting are you know, spread very far apart from each other. And a lot of the objects that are found in Osman Hamdi Bey's painting are objects that are now in the um, Turkish and Islamic Art Museum, which was originally part of the Archaeology Museum, which Osman, Osman Hamdi Bey was the director. So he just, he just, uh, <laughs> he just painted what he knew, <laughs> what he had read, ready access to. So let's talk a little bit about this 1908 painting we have here from Osman Hamdi Bey, Dervish at Children's Tomb. Well, this is another great example of one of Osman Hamdi Bey's uh, Orientalist works. And it's a dervish who is praying in a tomb. And we think that the tomb with the interior, um, you know, the characteristic green tiles uh, refers to uh, the green mosque in Bursa. And the dervish is, of course, Osman Hamdi Bey in uh, one of his costumes. Interestingly enough, the, um, the, the tomb itself, the, the cenotaphs, which we actually have a sketch um, uh, just simply of the cenotaphs, which is a real testament to how Osman Hamdi Bey really was um, so dedicated to detail and representing these um, artifacts and historical places with just really uh, loving care and attention to detail. Um, but interestingly enough, the tombs, the cenotaphs themselves are actually from, I think, Dama Ibrahim Pasha's Turbe in, uh, in Istanbul. So it's, they're actually 17th century cenotaphs and with in a room with 15th century green tiles. <laughs> so I see what you're referring to when you talk about this pastiche of different elements and from different periods. And it, it does have this Orientalist quality, you know, the Orientalists love to slap together mm-hmm. different elements like fan fiction about the uh, Middle East, basically. And you can see Os- Osman Hamdi Bey playing with this as well. One thing that's really important to remember in terms of how these paintings were made was uh, that Osman Hamdi Bey was trained, um, you know, in this Orientalist tradition of painting where, um, you know, very unlike, you know, I think most people know that, you know, the impressionist painters at that time, you know, sort of were famous for actually going out into nature and painting scenes that um, traditionally in the, um, you know, the Ecole de Beaux-Arts style um, or tradition, um, you know, these paintings were done in studios with props and models and photographs. And so when you're, um, for these Orientalist painters, when you go out, you know, and you travel, you know, in the Middle East and, and North Africa, um, you know, you sort of gather these uh, fragments of information, whether it be from photographs or um, architectural albums, you know, treatises and um, in costumes and objects. And when you got back to your studio, um, you sort of had to construct these worlds from these pieces, from these mementos, little bits of information about this um, this place that you want to evoke. And Osman Hamdi Bey was very much working in that tradition. It's this working method that um, really leads to uh, why these paintings are so constructed. Now, another painting I want to ask you about is one that we, we actually posted in our blog on the same day as Didem Havliolo's podcast about 
uh, women in literary culture in the Ottoman Empire. And it's a painting called Mihrab, and uh, and we can see a woman who's seated in front of the Mihrab, and there's all these books scattered on the floor. We can presume religious books, in fact. Mm-hmm. This is a really interesting painting, and it's it's unique in Osman Hamdi Bey's uh, work. Just to start out, we don't know a whole lot about the painting. We don't have a lot of information. And I have to just say in general that we don't really have a lot of documentation in terms of Osman Hamdi Bey, you know, um, directly discussing his work in any kinds of uh, correspondence or anything like that. But one thing that one aspect of Mihrab that that has surfaced lately that's that's really interesting as a result of doing research for the exhibition Ed Hemeldem was was kind enough to share with us some 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 correspondence, and um, as as we were looking through it, um, my colleague uh, uh, Jamie Seneki uh, she noticed that um, in the letters there was a con- uh, a, f- a reference to a painting named Genesis, and um, uh, we weren't sure what that uh, what that name could have possibly referred to, and um, actually, Professor Aldem has made a very convincing argument that um, Genesis is actually the the name of this this painting that we call that we have been calling Mihrab for you know frankly uh, lack of a better mm-hmm. lack of a better name this this makes sense if you look at the painting there's actually um, she has a little bump uh, in her belly you mean. in her belly mm-hmm. she has a little uh, a little belly bump and um, she's pregnant so the name Genesis um, is it's it still doesn't answer a whole lot of questions about the painting i mean it's still incredibly complicated but there has been this one aspect of the paint that there has this this one aspect that sheds a little bit more light on the painting well i think it's one of the paintings that most clearly illustrates that osman hamdi bey is not a simple figure no we don't know exactly what he's trying to do with this image there's there's many ways we can take it and certainly in its time and even today, Absolutely. many would consider this controversial image. So unfortunately, that, that painting is is not currently on display anywhere. It's apparently missing, but hopefully it'll kindly resurface someday and people will be able to uh, see it once again, as often does happen. Right. And speaking of paintings that uh, were missing in action, uh, we can talk a little bit about At the Mosque Door. This is the painting that turned up in the Penn Museum. Yes, precisely. And um, we have been looking into the story of how exactly an Osman Hamdi Bey painting um, got to the Penn Museum, which is an archaeology museum. They don't collect paintings. Um, And how it finally met its fate, um, you know, basically being rolled up. And we sort of sat down and we we traced, we sat down and we, we set out to, follow the route of this painting from Istanbul to Philadelphia. And it's actually, uh, it was quite the, uh, it was quite the traveled work. It was quite the, uh, peripatetic painting. And, um, we understand that it was, uh, it has a, it's dated. Um, so it's dated 1891. We are made to understand that it was ultimately destined for the Chicago Columbian Exposition, the World's Fair, um, that was to take place in 1893. Before it went to Chicago, um, it had two more stops. It had two stops first. It had um, it was at the um, the Berlin World Fine Arts Exposition in 1891, and 
Um, and then the next year in 1892, um, it was also exhibited at the, in, in Paris at the uh, Palais, Palais d'Industrie. There was actually two paintings. And one of the paintings, uh, Woman in a Turbay, actually uh, was purchased by the French uh, at the Louvre. And so they like that. Well, you know, we, it, it's a, the point is, is that it's a common strategy to, <laughs> it was already an established strategy of um, buying Osman Hamdi Bey's paintings to curry favor with him in terms of um, acquiring excavation permits and also being gifted uh, materials. Now, just as a, as a point of background, something that should be understood that's critical to all of this is that Osman Hamdi Bey was instrumental in revising the Asari Atika legislation. It had already been put in place in the 1860s and it was revised again, I think, in the 1870s. But Osman Hamdi Bey um, really rewrote the laws in terms of um, antiquities and how they were um, meant to be um, discovered and circulated within the Ottoman Empire. And the major changes that he made were that this new version of the law declared that all antiquities that were discovered in the Ottoman Empire belonged to the Ottoman Empire and could not be taken out of the country and were to become and were to be sent to the the newly established archaeology museum in Istanbul. So it really was a very um, you know Wendy Shaw has really covered this in her book and um, this was um, um, explored recently in um, the exhibition Scramble for the Past at Salt Galata, um, which was um, a year ago I think. What's interesting about this is um, this was the law, but of course, um, so so basically, uh, you know, foreign excavators who had previously basically come in and um, pillaged, pillaged archaeological is really sites the word for it, and... um, really pillaged, um, you know, entire sites. I mean, so the Pergamon Museum, <laughs> they they you know they they just you know it was just the Pergamon altar is is now in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. There were ways to get around it, and one aspect of this law is that um, legally these antiquities belong to the Ottoman Empire, but one way you could kind of get around it, the law could be flexible, is that Osman Hamdi Bey, as representative of the Sultan, could um, make grant a gift to a particular organization or university or individual you know, basically starting from, you know, 1884 on, this was the context that they had, that they had to operate within, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Osman Hamdi Bey had all of the, the Orientalists and anti- antiquarians uh, rushing to his, his doorstep. <laughs> he had re- yes. redrafted the law so that all the antiquities belong only to the Ottoman Empire and its, its museum. He de facto becomes the only person who has any control over the, these antiquities. Yeah, exactly. So what this law basically does is basically make Osman Hamdi Bey uh, a gatekeeper um, in terms of, you know, um, antiquities that uh, left the country. And I mean, I can't stress enough how instrumental he was in revising this law because you know before there was pretty much um little to no regulation on the ground and things were leaving the country you know by crateful you know mm-hmm. you know after this law you know it, um, the ottoman empire really became uh really became an equal this definitely changed um the tides in terms of the power dynamics that were at play here in 
you know, the sort of scramble for archaeological material. So within this context, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what is the relationship between the painting that you alluded to before, this relationship between archaeology, diplomacy, and the art of Osman Hamdi Bey? What's this relationship? The painting ulti- the, at the mosque door ultimately does uh, arrive at the Columbian Exposition, but it arrives alone because uh, its partner painting that was also supposed to be exhibited at the Columbian Exposition was snatched up by the uh, by the French when it was they were being the two paintings were being exhibited in Paris and we have documentation that the French decided that they wanted to um, buy the painting buy one of the paintings um, as I said to curry favor with Osman Hamdi Bey so the paintings in so at the Mostor arrives at the Columbian Exposition. An individual who's also at the exhibition is John Punnett Peters, who is a very um, important character uh, figure in this story. Um, He is uh, sort of one of the architects of the uh, excavations at Nippur, and he has a he has a a good relationship, working relationship with Osman Hamdi Bey. And we actually have a letter um, that Peters writes to Osman Hamdi Bey from the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, explaining that. That he's very sorry because the painting is not in the fine arts in the fine arts building. It's actually in the Ottoman Pavilion, which is not originally where it was supposed to be. But he assured Osman Hamdi Bey that everyone who saw it, um, you know, thought it was a, a, a magnificent painting, and uh, it actually was awarded a medal. So he assured Osman Hamdi Bey that you know people did appreciate his efforts at the, and he was well represented at the Chicago exhibition. And what happens during? Just after that um, is not terribly clear, but we have some documentation um, that the painting then went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and was excavated and, and was um, exhibited there um, temporarily as a loan. And what well, we have our um, board minute meetings uh, from dated 1895 um, that are the um, the board minutes of of the archaeological museum. And what they basically, they discuss buying this painting and they say that, you know, in order to um, recognize Osman Hamdi Bey for, you know, um, this relationship that we have and the service that he has done um, for the Nippur painting, for the Nippur excavations, uh, we should buy his painting. And we hear that one of his paintings is at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, just down the street. How convenient. Um, Let's buy it. And they name a price. They say we'll give you six thousand. They they say we'll give him six thousand francs for the painting. Um, notably, uh, the French only paid four thousand francs for their painting. Oh wow! Good deal. <laughs> they paid. <laughs> it was a very expensive, uh, <laughs> very expensive uh, uh, attempt at flattery. And well, it's a um, big painting, though, right? It's a, it, it, they, you know, they really got, you know, that. You know, they got a lot of value. <laughs> the American way. You know, you exactly. Buy exactly. Biggest painting possible. They just bought the biggest painting possible. And also tied up with buying this painting at the same time, they um, they awarded Osman Hamdi Bey an honorary uh, degree from the University of Pennsylvania. And they also um, um, made him a corresponding member of the, you know, very prestigious at the time, uh, the Archaeological Society of the Museum. So they also sort of, you know, in many ways, um, honored him with these uh, with these various uh, awards uh, in conjunction with with buying the painting. So, you know, we have a thank you letter from Osman Hamdi saying, yes, you know, um, 
this is, you know, very nice. I, you know, I would love to sell you this painting. And um, the painting was bought by by the Penn Museum. And um, that's that's the last we hear of it. The last the last trace we have of the painting before it's rolled up um, at some point, probably in the early 20th century, is a photograph from 1899. It's a little um, it's a little newsletter about the opening of the museum. And in one of the photographs, it's very grainy, but you can see that the painting is hanging in the Widener Auditorium, which was the old the old auditorium of, of the Penn Museum. And then that's, that's the last we hear of it. And then, you know, it doesn't surface again for about 100 years until 2007. And so your job here, your job with this research was, was to uncover this entire story that you Precisely, just told us, Precisely, right? was to track the journey of, of this painting and understand uh, how and why it got to the Penn Museum because it's pretty unusual uh, transaction. I mean, it's all about this Nippur excavation, right? Yes. So explain. This is the thing that brings it all together. What was the point, this, this uh, Nippur excavation? Well, this was really adventures in Bible land, as, <laughs> as, uh, as we like to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this really was really a scramble of the past for the past. But uh, Philadelphia High Society um, was particularly interested in uh, Sumerian and Assyrian archaeology because, you know, with this sort of it's really the politics of, um, you know, evangelical Protestant movements and this um, attempt to establish historical validity to the Bible. Um, so what they were after in Nippur was um, finding cuneiform tablets. They were all about the tablets. And um, if they could find tablets that gave some kind of um, information that verified any aspect of the Bible, that was really the mother load. That's exactly what they were after. At Penn, they established uh, the Babylonian uh, Exploration Fund, the BEF, and they actually sent out in the mid-1880s, they sent out the Wolf Expedition to locate uh, a suitable site in Iraq of, you know, either Sumerian or Assyrian origins, and they ended up finding Nippur, and the excavation started in 1889, and they persisted until uh, 1900. And it was a long, hard campaign uh, that was really fraught with um, tragedy and um, death. And <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, it was it was hard uh, excavating, um, and uh, everything just seemed to go wrong for this excavation. But finally, um, in the last year, 1900. Um, Another another important figure of the story, uh, John Henry Haynes, he ends up uh, discovering the Motherlode, which was the Temple Library, which yielded something like twenty six thousand cuneiform tablets, which many are at, are still at the University of Pennsylvania. So I think we can kind of see where this is going. But how exactly do the tablets get to Penn? Being that there's this law in place where you know thousands of tablets would would have to stay in the Ottoman Empire's antiquities the the state as we were saying before this is really this painting and these tablets are really representative of these diplomatic or political relationships so enter uh, the third really important figure in this story who is uh, his name is Hermann Hilprecht 
And uh, he's a German Assyriologist and he's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, he does, he's, he's, he's a really interesting guy, uh, to say the least. For one reason or another, um, you know, he, he goes to Nippur initially, but, you know, essentially Haynes is really left with all of the grunt work. Well, Hilprecht stayed in Istanbul uh, with Osman Hamdi Bey, basically, you know, drinking tea and reading tablets. You know, he doesn't actually go back to Nippur until the end in 1900. And really the scandal is, is that he basically takes all the credit. And, uh, you know, eventually, you know, people criticize him for this and he ends up losing his position. But what's important to take away from this is that while uh, Hilprecht is in Istanbul, uh, he forms a friendship with Osman Hamdi Bey at the museum, uh, who really needs Hilprecht because he's an Assyriologist, he can read cuneiform, and Osman Hamdi Bey saw the advantage in forming a mutual relationship with him because, you know, Osman Hamdi Bey wanted to gain Hilprecht's expertise in reading these tablets. Um, they sort of form this uh, symbiotic relationship, so to speak, and Shortly after the purchase of the uh, mosque door, basically it worked. Uh, in 1897, we have some correspondence um, where Hilprecht uh, excitedly reports back to the Babylonian excavation uh, exploration fund that uh, Osman Hanzi Bey has decided to award um, or to gift some of the choicest tablets to the University of Pennsylvania, you know, as a gift, and. In his letter to to the Penn Museum in 1897, actually, Hilprecht writes that Osman Hamdi Bey said, this is a quote, you could get these objects from me by force, but you have decided to use persuasion. Persuasion always works better with me than force, which I resist, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) So there we have it. So Osman Hamdi, you know, so at least in this letter, we can see with this sort of personal interaction that, you know, um, Osman Hamdi Bey appreciated these efforts to form these friendships, uh, working relationships uh, with the Ottoman administrators. Some people did not, uh, (laughs) there are many examples of excavators who did not uh, prove to be as prudent as that. Um, So um, a lot of people in the beginning didn't really take the Asariatika revisions uh, very seriously. And we have some some funny stories of people, you know, showing up in Istanbul and um, there were the excavator, the American excavators at Assos, for example, and um, were really boorish and sort of kind of really made asses of themselves. And that didn't go over very well. And they did not get the uh, the permits and the uh, the materials that they were hoping for. And so... <laughs> There are many cautionary tales of people who uh, uh, did not take the mm-hmm. the route of persuasion or uh, friendship when dealing with us in Hamdi Bey. Well, what's ironic for me, at least, as someone living in the 21st century, these, these are coveted paintings today, Osman Hamdi Bey. I'm sure that, that Penn was very excited when they realized they had an Osman Hamdi Bey. And it, it just it shows you the kinds of world and mentality and people that we're talking about when we talk about late 19th, early 20th century archaeologists that in order to gain access to a cuneiform tablet, they will begrudgingly purchase the painting of someone who today is considered one of the most foremost figures in, in Ottoman art. How, you know, sort of a little bit of disregard for Osman Hamdi Bey as a painter. And, and it's it's really a metaphor for the way that Orientalists viewed the East, whether we talk about, you know, the expeditions that went with Napoleon to Egypt, always, always looking for 
this past that they were so intent on finding for some kind of validation. And so Osman Hamdi Bey really finds himself at the center of this. And as a result, his paintings end up in Pennsylvania and we can enjoy them today. Well, Emily, it's been really great having you on the podcast. Definitely worth the wait. Thank you so much for having me. For those interested in more about the topic, we have a bibliography on the website where you can also check out these awesome images of someone some of Osman Hamdi Bey's paintings as well as other images associated with our topic and the podcast. That's all for this installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care.